Hello, and welcome to the Bayside Sermon Series podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Duckworth, Media and Technical Director at Bayside. This week, we're looking at Daniel chapter 7 and the four beasts of the vision that Daniel sees during the reign of King Belshazzar. Welcome back to the podcast after our two-week holiday break. This week, we are back in Daniel. We are in chapter 7 this time uh, with Pastor Ken. In the sermon, Pastor Ken, you gave some insightful details about the setting of this chapter. Could you reiterate some of those key points of the timeline? We're reading about this is King Belshazzar and what is happening here in in the time of Daniel. Um, yeah, so if you remember... Uh, Daniel was a teenager um, in Jerusalem and godly teenager. He had some godly friends. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of Babylon. And at that time, the Babylonian Empire was dominating the world scene. Um, and one of the places they dominated was um, Jerusalem, is Israel. And uh, obviously, Scripture gives a reason. And it was because of their rejection of God's statutes, their rebellion against God, um, their neglect um, of those in need, um, their oppression. So lots of reasons. God was very patient with them, but he used the Babylonians um, to send them into exile. So uh, Daniel and his friends go to Babylon around 605 B.C., go through some schooling there because they're bright guys. They graduate top of their class after three years, get put in some uh, pretty good positions in the um, Babylonian government. They serve on the high court. Then they go through a bunch of trials. You know, we learned about a lot of those in the first half of Daniel in the previous sermon series. And, you know, that's the Daniel and the lion's den and... Um, the, the fiery pit that uh, everybody uh, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into. And um, there was another in the fire, you know, the, that one, uh, that, that pre-incarnate Christ rescuing them from the fire. So they go through all of these through ups and downs, but you see their faithfulness through all of it. And, da- and Daniel really uh, served very faithfully through all of his years. So some time goes by, and um, so Daniel chapter seven is a vision. The vision takes place in right in verse one. It says in the first year of Belshazzar. This is, he's probably in his mid sixties. This is right around the time 553 BC. He's the the last king of Babylon. Um, So this is after Nebuchadnezzar's gone and everything. So again, Daniel's in his mid sixties and the suffering of the Jews had reached the climax under uh, Belshazzar. So that's where we. That's where this vision picks up. All right. So, these next several chapters are considered apocalyptic literature. Can you briefly define that genre? Uh, yeah. So, apocalyptic literature. It's a, a genre, a type of biblical literature. You know, there's lots. There's um, there's letters. There's there's poetry. There's so many. Uh, different kinds of literature in the Bible. Um, so this is a specific kind of prophetic literature called apocalyptic. So it deals with a God's eye view of history, um, and it uses colorful metaphors and, and symbols, um, lots of symbolic language, all with the purpose of giving hope 
uh, future hope to those who are in present trouble. So in this case, um, the Jews were uh, suffering in exile under a wicked king. The purpose of apocalyptic literature is to provide hope for God's people in the present, usually when they're in times of trial. So in other words, we should treat this literature a little differently, say, from poetic literature like the book of Psalms, or uh, wisdom literature like the book of Proverbs, that this is not straightforward, this is, this is not literal, these are metaphorical speeches, these are, are not to be, uh, you know, counting things and, and taking names, that numbers don't always mean actual numbers, that they could mean the fullness of things or just a, a general sense of, of different things, that they're not to be taken as a literal sense. That's, yeah, that's right. So um, because apocalyptic literature, um, and it does oftentimes employ poetry, poetic devices, um, but apocalyptic literature speaks of things yet future. Um, and in that regard, you really do have to be careful in how deep into the woods you want to get with some of the um, images and symbols used in prophecy. And sometimes it's, you know, it is pretty, it is really obvious. Um, and we'll see that in chapter 11 particularly. But other times it's, you have to look at a text and realize, wait, this solid biblical evangelical uh, scholar believes this about a certain text or takes these numbers, um, you know, metaphorically, but, and this evangelical biblical scholar takes a literal approach to those numbers. And it's okay to look at all of those and say, huh, I don't know which one and move on. Um, and honestly, that's, um, you know, there are the times that, that I, I'm convinced about something, I'll preach about it. Um, but the more and more I tend to study these prophecies or apocalyptic literature, the more confused it becomes. The more in awe I am of God every single time, but then the more confused I get about trying to nail down, you know, the specifics of, of the, uh, the prophecies. Um, so yeah, it's, you have to, you have to exercise caution and you have to be flexible because it's likely that I will disagree with one scholar one day, and then I might agree with him another day. Um, and I've gone through, I've studied some of this stuff and I've disagreed with myself so many times. <laughs> so you just have to take a humble approach to it and say, well, you know, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. Glory to God. <laughs> Amen. All right. So let's get to the meat of the chapter. <clears throat> In chapter seven, we have the vision of the four beasts. And I really appreciated how you took the time to explain what each of the animals in Daniel's vision represented. Can you remind us of each of those creatures and what they were and what they each represented? Yeah, so um, Daniel has this vision and he sees these four beasts coming out of the sea. Now, you don't know what these beasts are yet, but I wanted to just, uh, so there wasn't a, as much explanation, because you don't find out till 17 um, when Daniel is told by a heavenly messenger, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So they're kings or kingdoms, these four beasts. Now, you don't know that from the beginning, but I still, I, I preached it with the assumption that we knew that from the beginning. Um, so that those four beasts um, stir, uh, the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea, four beasts came out. The first one, lion 
eagle's wings. So you have this hybrid lion eagle. Um, and historically, we understand that is Babylon. Uh, the major streets in Babylon were lined with statues of winged lions. And then even, you know, some of the wording where it says made to stand on two feet like a man, the mind of a man was given it. That's a reference to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, then the second beast was like a bear. Uh, raised up on one side, three ribs in its mouth, um, devour much flesh, it was told. So this is like a lopsided bear, uh, one side higher than the other, and this is indicative of the Medo-Persian Empire, um, who had not yet come to power when Daniel had this vision and, and wrote it down, because that was the, the media was the lower side, the lesser kingdom, and Persia was the higher and more dominant kingdom. The third beast was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and it had four heads. Uh, so this is like a four-headed leopard with four wings, and we know the leopard to be one of the fastest animals uh, in creation. And then the four the four wings would show that this beast would be very quick. So it's understood as the kingdom of Greece, which came and dominated uh, the Medio Media Persian Empire in 331 BC. Um, again, so that's like more than 200 years after Daniel even had this vision. Greece uh, was led by Alexander the Great, and he was known for conquering the world at that time at such an incredible speed. He was like 22 when he started, 32. Um, he ruled over the then known world. So those uh, the, the, the four heads then of that beast represents that the fact that when Alexander died, his empire, his kingdom was divided into four territories and given to the four uh, generals that he had. So that's a, a reference to uh, even the division of the uh Greek Empire, and then the fourth beast. Uh, Daniel describes as terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, iron teeth, stamped what was left of whatever it devoured in uh, broken pieces. But there's something different about this one. Well, number one, verse seven says it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So it's got ten horns. But the other thing that's different is it's not associated with any particular animal. There's no, nothing in the world of zoology that Daniel can compare it to. Now, the beast has ten horns, which speaks of its great and destructive strength. So whether those are ten literal or ten figurative, um, that's uh, an unknown uh, question that, or an unknown answer. And that appears to be what we know as the Roman Empire, um, which began dominating the world in 63 BC after uh, Greece. And they had their mighty and cruel iron legions. Then what happens, after those four beasts and those ten horns, Daniel says, there came up among them another horn, a little one. Um, and then, no more zoo talk, animal talk, he says, this horn, uh, behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things, and great there means uh, blasphemous, uh, proud, boastful. Um, and anytime you see scripture where it says, some uh, attributes something like the eyes, or a mouth to something, there's... There's meaning and intent behind that. Um, so the fact that you see these um, these eyes, it's trying to tell us that this individual um, is intelligent, insightful. Um, and then the fact that it has mouth that speaks these great things shows how dangerous that this individual will be. Because uh, he's not going to only be seen as intelligent, but very, very persuasive and destructive with his words. Um, and then... Um, and we don't get into a whole lot of specifics about um, who in particular that horn is just yet, because Daniel's going to ask a little bit more about it. And the other thing to, that would, is really uh, a neat exercise is if you look at Daniel chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar has a terrifying dream of that great statue, um, head of gold, 
chest of, of silver, body of, of, uh, of bronze, and then um, feet of iron mixed with clay. And uh, so you, you see that, and there's essentially that was Nebuchadnezzar's uh, view of these four beasts. You know, so it's this huge, magnificent, uh, beautiful statue made of precious metals. And that's often how the world views kings and kingdoms, as these majestic, mighty, um, uh, you know, th- th- uh, things, entities. Yet from God's point of view, it's nothing that uh, more than a beast that rise out of a chaotic sea. Um, so you kind of have the juxtaposition of the two different vi- of these two different visions, one for Nebuchadnezzar, one for Daniel, but there's significant overlap between them. And one of the things you mentioned in the sermon was that God gave dominion to, to these groups and specifically some context for us here that God gave dominion to both Greece and Rome. Alexander the Great, one of the big things that he did was he brought a unified language to all the world. Before, everybody spoke their own language, each, each nation their own. Alexander comes in and you speak Greek now. You speak Greek. Everybody speaks Greek. And then Rome, when they took over, everybody still spoke Greek, but the technology that Rome brought, specifically like the roads, and then Pax Romana, which is basically peace by violent force if necessary, <laughs> uh, which is they were good at, but those two things God used to help spread the gospel. It was easier to go on the mission statement to go from Jerusalem to Judea than to the ends of the world because you all spoke a common language and there were safe roads to travel on. Yeah, that's right. That's, um, that's a really good point. And I, yeah, I love how it was just right at the perfect time where uh, the Son of Man <laughs> was incarnated. All right. So, as you mentioned on Sunday, verse 13 and 14 are about the Son of Man. And Pastor Dave preached about that in our Advent series, A Son is Given. For those who need a little reminder about that sermon, one of the roles of the Son of Man is to sit in judgment of all mankind, uh, which Daniel does see in his, vi- his vision in verse 10. Uh, it says that 10,000 times 10,000, which again, not literal numbers, but just a mass amount of people, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. That's, that's the day of judgment. That's uh, the Son of Man is sitting in the court. In what way is this scene different from what Daniel saw in the kingdom of the beasts. Daniel is is seeing these beasts, and he's terrified. Yeah, he's terrified when he sees the beasts. Um, and then when in those in that next scene, he's you know transported. Um, his vision is no more of those beasts of the earth, but now it's his, of the throne room of heaven and the ancient of days, and then um, and then the son of man, um, and. It's the what's cool here also is how if you look in your Bibles, you'll see how uh, the verses uh, are even um, formatted differently because uh, verse nine starts uh, some poetry, Hebrew poetry, and they're written in Hebrew poetry, uh, this part, because it's what it's trying to do, uh, Daniel's trying to do is convey the order and beauty uh, surrounding God as opposed to the chaos uh, and destruction of the sea and the violence of the sea. Um, so you, so yeah, you you see just this this beautiful picture of 
God and the, these, this imagery. Um, thrones were placed, ancient of days, white clothing, um, hair like pure wool, throne of fiery flames. You know, those, you know, it refers to uh, God's, God's wisdom, his, his justice, his purity, his holiness, his power. Um, and the only one worthy enough to receive praise. It says, a thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Again, that's not literal 10,000 times 10,000. That was the largest number that uh, they had um, any kind of word for then. So when it says 10,000 times 10,000, that might be equivalent to us saying like like millions and millions, you know, just saying so many you can't count them. Um, so, so millions and millions of people serving him and standing before him, worshiping him. Um, and that's just uh, such a, a beautiful picture of the justice and, and worthiness and orderliness of God, as opposed to the corruption and wickedness and chaos of the kingdoms of men. One of the early points you made in the sermon was that there is nothing in this world that can disrupt God's plan for you. Now, that's a powerful statement. And in order for us to fully embrace this statement, it's going to require us to surrender to several things. We would have to believe that God has a plan for us, that God is sovereign over all things, that God is in control. There's a difference. He's, he is king of all things, and he knows what he's doing. The insurance industry still calls major natural catastrophes acts of God because they don't want to pay those claims. It's God's fault, not mine. Uh, God is good. Uh, There's another thing we have to, to get our minds wrapped around and has what is best for us in his plan. Even when we think we failed, God has a plan for that. We can do nothing in our own strength. Those are all things that we have to to surrender to in order to really get to this idea that there's nothing that we can do or that the world can do to disrupt God's plan for you. You're, uh, that's a really good point. And in fact, that's, that's exactly what you see here. Because remember, this vision is, in respo- is God's response um, to is Daniel, or is God giving this to Daniel, God's initiation, um, and it's, remember, they're in uh, exile, they're in captivity, in a foreign nation, under a foreign language, under godless rulers, um, you know, the butt of everyone's jokes in the neighborhood, uh, so so they're, they're in this context of suffering. Why? Because of their disobedience and rebellion, right? So they're the ones who messed it all up, and now they're paying the consequences for that. That sounds like us a lot. And yet, God gives this vision to Daniel and says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. It's an everlasting kingdom. So so Daniel gets this vision and that must have so much encouraged him right there because of the fact that even in their rebellion and their, their consequences uh, and in their captivity, God is not forgetting about them and he still will send that one to redeem them, to usher them into an everlasting kingdom. 
So you have, so that's exactly like us. Like, yes, even our mistakes and our, our, our mishaps, our sins, our rebellion, even that stuff God will use to bring about his good purposes. Now you open the sermon with a quote and I'm not going to say it exactly, but the gist of the quote is that humans hate uncertainty. Yep. Uh, now, so can we, can we contrast that with Deuteronomy 29, 29? Uh, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, humans hate not knowing everything, but we are to obey God in the things that he has revealed to us and have faith in him for the things not yet revealed. Knowledge was part of the attraction of eating from the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden. That's right. Uh, why do we want to depend on our own knowledge and not trust in God? <laughs> well, we think we know better. <laughs> know better, yes. Yes, I, I know. We, we, cer- we certainly think we know better. We think we, we are capable enough uh, that we are... Um, Maybe even, I mean, worth, more worthy enough than we see. You know, it's, it's the um, worship of an idolization of self in our context, in our culture. Um, yeah, so. so when we seek knowledge over pleasing God, we are making idols of ourselves. Oh, yeah. 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 Because we're wanting to be like God. Right. We want to be in control of our destiny yeah. or at least have a plan for our day. But your takeaway from this week points us elsewhere. The takeaway was our future is held firmly in the hands of us. No, it's firmly in the hands of the Father. It's not our destiny, not our plans, not even our future. It is His. It is what He has for us. And you gave four points to affirm the statement. God controls even the fiercest evils that rise in opposition to Him. This was the, the storms and, and the, the beasts that come out. Every, everything that you, that's mentioned there in that first vision is rising up against him, against God, against us. The second point you had, that though evil, and there's a lot of rhyming here, though <laughs> evil appears to have the sway, God has the say and will ultimately win the day. And I believe I may have heard that or something similar to that from Max Lucado. Um, not Dr. Seuss? Not Dr. Seuss, okay. no. Although, I, Max Lucado would probably write a killer children's book. The third point we had was that we can face the future with faith because we know how the story ends. That was what Daniel, he went into the into that throne room, that, that second vision, and he had to ask. He asked the angels, what's going on? What does this all mean? And the response that he got was, was comforting. It helped him. Um, and, and that's something that we should be doing as well. We should be praying, asking, God, what is this you have planned for me? Help me to, to, to understand this. And the fourth point, uh, the temporary suffering we experience on earth will be eclipsed by the everlasting peace will know in eternity. Now now that we've had our four points, help us with some practicality of these statements. How does the parent holding their child in the ICU see God in control of that moment? 
or the young woman that finds herself unexpectedly pregnant and scared for her future, the drug addict struggling to make it through the day without abusing. How can the least of these be reminded that their future is held firmly in the hands of the Father? We live on this speck of dust in the timeline of eternity. Can you help us zoom out of our life for just a moment and look up? What words of comfort can Daniel give us from chapter 7? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, I think I think that's a big part of, you know, the purpose of a lot of these um, apocalyptic prophecies, these apocalyptic visions for us in Scripture is because we, for whatever reason, for his good purposes and for our well-being, God chooses not to give us the why behind all of those tragic situations, um, getting into addiction or um, holding a, a child in the ICU, uh, terrified what the diagnosis might be or the prognosis. Um, well, on, at least on this side of eternity, we won't know uh, every why. But what we do know, what we can be assured of, what these visions do remind us, or especially even those, what those moments remind us of, because it's in those moments of pain, it's in those moments of sorrow, it's in those moments of suffering, when we're more prone to look up, to look up and, and seek God and to ask him for help. Um, so it was, I think, C.S. Lewis who said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, um, speaks to us. And then, um, and then he says, God shouts at us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Um, so God uses pain and suffering, uh, even the worst, even the most tragic kinds, to enable us to seek him, to experience him. That's number one. Number two, the reality is that nobody knows what you're going through better than he does. Because um, if there's anyone who knows what it's like to lose a child, uh, it's God. Um, so he could empathize with us uh, in all of our suffering and all of our struggles. And the hope that you get knowing that though this pain is this suffering is painful, it's difficult, it's challenging, it's not going to last forever. Um, it feels like it's going to last forever. It feels like it will never go away. Um, it feels like it won't end. But if we've seen God be true to his word in any one other way in our lives, in scripture, then we can know that God has been true. Uh, God will be true to everything that he said that has yet to be fulfilled. Um, so the matter, the, the, knowing that God will bring about good, though we might not understand it. Um, and that might not even, that may not comfort us in the moment, in that, that moment of, of chaos and, and, uh, and suffering. But God is there. He has a purpose. He walks with us um, through those seasons. Then though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, so God is leading the way through all of those seasons, and he promises to use even the worst for his glory, for our good. Um, so having a grand view of God, knowing that God is so much bigger 
and anything we face, um, but never um, looks down on anything we face, but grasps us and carries us through it is such a comfort. Um, it's been comfort in my own life. Um, that's been a comfort from so many godly saints who um, have incredible testimonies of God carrying them through their most difficult seasons, or even God revealing himself to them in through their most difficult seasons when they didn't even know him prior to that. Amen. Next week, Daniel chapter 8, Pastor Dave will be speaking. Is there a preview you can give us for next week? It's another vision. This whole second half, Daniel has four grand visions. The first one was in chapter 7, so we're going to see he's got a second vision coming next week. Um, it's a vision of a ram, a goat, and uh, the little horn. Uh, and then there's an interpretation given on the vision, too, later on in that chapter. So we will uh, we'll see um, what that vision is and what God has uh, for us through that vision and how um, how does that vision even apply to us to this day. So, yeah, that will be uh, that will be for next week's. And after we're done with Daniel, all these talks of the vision and the future, they're leading up to our next sermon series our vision for the next several years. That's right, yeah. So uh, starting February 19th, we'll have a three-week sermon series called Revision. Um, and we're going to be looking at um, the three aspects, three components um, of um, what has bubbled up through this vision process thus far. Um, one uh, on becoming, um, one on advancing, and one on uh, overflowing. So, you know, becoming... Um, uh, mature disciple of Christ, um, you know, advancing uh, the kingdom um, and then overflowing uh, with generosity in how we use resources and people and what we want to do in the community um, moving forward. So, um, yeah, <laughs> that's uh, uh, all, all hopefully that will last long into the future or however long into the future when uh, Jesus does return. So, Wonderful. Thank you, Pastor Ken, for joining us. That's going to be the end of our podcast for this week. Thank you for your time, and thank you for joining us in this conversation. Have a blessed week, everybody.